The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Um, pastor Sam, our worship pastor, is actually guest speaking in Northern California today. Um, we were like, dude, you got to go down there and fix those people. <coughs> so he's working on it. Um, but um, just great to have Seth and the gang to be able to continue to lead worship. It's not about who's up here. It's about the God that's up there and here with us. Amen? Amen. By the way, when we sing that song, the whole, we love to shout your name, that whole Yahweh, Yahweh part, I love that I'm, like, I even got up here. I could hear it better than down there. There's, like, some yelling going on, but I'm just saying, I think we can do better. I'm just saying, like, it could be a full-on yell. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make Sam do that song next week because he'll be leading worship here next week, and I'm, I'm, let's just see. Let's just see what happens. So uh, those of you that can, is this week the Civil War? Who knows that? Is that this week? Okay, so some of you will be yelling like, yes, Yahweh, and others of you will be yelling like, Yahweh, whatever. We'll just see how it goes. Um, while you're uh, turning there, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, if you do not have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high. We want to make sure that you get one and are able to sort of track with us. If you do not own a Bible, that is a gift to you. We pray that it would be a blessing to you that would bring you into even closer fellowship with Jesus and teach you all about him. So um, just stick your hand up nice and high. One of the guys will get them. Nobody? All right, we're all covered. A um, couple of announcements. First of all, I have some books. Yay. Um, it's been a while since I've done this, but I, I have a couple of books. We, we do this every once in a while. We haven't done it for a while, but it's an opportunity to kind of introduce you guys to some of the works that are out there that we have found particularly helpful and fruitful. And this guy in particular, oh man, his name's Paul Tripp. I don't know if you know much about Paul Tripp, but Paul Tripp has an incredible ministry. He, he actually comes out of, um, I think it's called Tenth Presbyterian, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember, but it's in Philadelphia. It's the church that James Montgomery Boyce came from, uh, uh, Barnhouse came from. It's a, like a church that has some incredible legacy. And, and Paul Tripp is an amazing pastor and counselor. And so he's done a lot of incredible writings that have really ministered to my soul um, in things that I've just navigated through in life in general. And just an incredible writer that has this crazy ability to just bring grace into everything. And I'm talking about not just like, hey, God loves you, grace, but I mean like even the realities and sometimes the hard things that come along with our understanding of grace. He's a very gifted writer. And he came out with a devotional book. It's called New Morning Mercies. It's a daily devotional about this. Now, for some of you, this just isn't for some of you. Like I was like, man, this might be good. I might read that. And I opened it up and there's like dates at the top. June 8, June 9, and I was like, I know I ain't going to do that. Like, it just doesn't work for me. My journal, when I do journaling, it'll be like, January 4th, oh, the Lord showed me this, this, this. And then the next entry, September 18th, the Lord showed me. Uh, that's just me, and so I don't know. But, but if you are looking for something that you can just get up in the morning and just be exposed to the grace of God, man, this is it. And, and you're going to chew on this stuff, all right? So hands up, front row people somewhere in there. There's one right there. Another one over here somewhere. Here it comes. There you go. And so uh, now, um, so there's that. Second of all, last weekend, we did, um, our huddle groups had their um, outreach weekend last weekend. And so I wanted to just, we got some pictures, if you could kind of put those up. Um, I, I think it's important for us to be able to sort of celebrate the successes and the things that the church is doing. We, we spent some time going through the vision and the mission of our church. And so what we wanted to do is be able to show you, as we do some of these things, do a better job of kind of reporting reporting the, the successes that the church experiences. And so as you can tell right now, we did nothing last week. We accomplished absolutely nothing. It was lip service only. Are we not, we're not going to have any of that? No? We have no slides whatsoever? Nothing? All right, let me describe it to you. Picture one. Picture some, picture some lovely fall trees, and they're a little bit red in tint, and kids raking. No, um, well, sorry about that. We've got them somewhere, technical difficulties. But um, it was just a great time last week, the huddle groups going out into the community. Um, the group I'm a part of, we went to the Magdalene House, which is a shelter for homeless teenage mothers that are pregnant. It helps teach them how to care for their children and gives them all sorts of resources and the opportunity to bring the gospel into their lives and 
We just took a whole bunch of people over there and did a bunch of yard work and raked leaves, and it was a blast. Um, I, I heard one of the other groups, they, um, the week before when the huddle group met, they actually had the kids make all sorts of little crafts and gifts and things. And then last week during the actual outreach weekend, they took them to one of the local nursing homes and just spent some time with elderly people there in the nursing homes and brought gifts and brought treats and things like that. Um, I think I heard one of our groups, if I heard this right, oh, there we go, we did something, yeah. All right, so you can just scroll through those as we're going. But um, also one of the other groups, if I'm not mistaken, they connected either with an organization or something. I don't know how it worked out, but they were writing letters to Christians in Iraq and in places like that that are experiencing persecution and just encouraging them. And I just, man, it's just so good to be involved in those kinds of things. So if you're not involved in a community group, man, I really encourage you to find one or come to us. Let us help you with that. Um, and we'd love to see some more. There's another one about to launch here pretty soon. Uh, the one I'm is not even made it onto the website yet. So there's some, there's some new stuff coming, but we need more. So um, pray for that. And uh, man, we just had a great time. He had to sign a waiver before doing that, just to be clear, um, blowing out the gutters. But yeah, we just had a great time. So anyway, that's enough of that. If you'll go, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to teach on everyone's favorite topic this morning, giving. Lock the doors. Lock the doors. No, man, this is everyone's least favorite topic. Here's what I know. Um, I've done this long enough to know this. No one's downloading this tomorrow off the podcast. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is one of those topics that's just not going to happen. Last week we had this time talking about everything from despair and discouragement and friendship, what it means to be a gospel-centered friend. And the response I got on that actually was amazing. Like it was huge feedback on all that and the downloads were through the roof of that sermon last week. That will not be the case today. That's just not going to be. Um, and I hate teaching about this. And that's not just, oh, he's pretending to be humble. You can ask my wife. You can ask the other pastors. I have loathed putting this sermon together for a really long time. Just maybe loathed is a rough word. Um, Dreaded putting this sermon together. How about that? Because it's just outside my comfort zone. I'm not good with that. We got Christmas coming. and, And any of you have any of those families where you open gifts one at a time and everyone watches you open the gift? I hate that. Like it's just, I, and, and this, maybe these are pride issues with me. I'm still sort of sorting some of those things out. But that for some people, like dealing with that kind of stuff, it's just hard for some of us. We need to grow maybe in our humility in that. And so even for me as a pastor, I hate that. I hate it for a lot of reasons. I'm, I, there might be people here today that are new coming here. And I, the last thing in the world I want is, is people to feel like, especially based on abuses and we've seen in the past, for people to feel like that, oh, it's just one of them. It's just not. So if you're a first-time visitor, you are required to be here next week, okay? We will, get ba- we will get past that. And I do mean we will be past that in the next week because here's the truth of this. This passage right here is two chapters on giving. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are all about giving. And so as I was looking at this stuff, I'm like, oh, if, if we do what we normally do and try to just verse by verse really pick this stuff about, I'm going to be teaching about this for weeks And so I am totally cheating today. Just so you know, we're going to go eight through nine all at once and move on. That's what we're going to do. Maybe that's my own weakness and my own sinfulness. I'll repent later, but this is what we're going to do today is we're going to go through chapters eight and nine. And I'm going to start out by reading chapter eight um, and the the first part of it anyway. And then we'll just go through and we're going to take a look at some of this. Okay. So let's look at second Corinthians chapter eight, starting in verse one. Because why? Because it's first. All right, verse one. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, he should complete among you this act of grace. And as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. 
I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God, I ask, Lord, that you would just speak to us as we deal with this. It's an uncomfortable subject for many. It's a subject that's been handled abusively. It's a subject, Lord, that for some of us it pushes against our own comfort zones, our own, whether that be insecurities or fears or whatever the case may be. But, Lord, we know that your word is good and that everything that is in your word is given for our benefit that we might experience increasing joy as we draw closer to you. And we also know, Lord, that everything in your word is good because it teaches us more about you and who you are. So God, may you accomplish both of those things this morning as we study these things. May you, Lord, lead us to be more like you and teach us more what you're like. May our understanding of you and our ability to walk in line with you be increased this morning by your Holy Spirit. And so I pray, God, that your spirit would speak Pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O my King, my Redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. So before we look at this, here's what we're going to be doing today. I'm not going to read through all two chapters. It just takes a lot of time for us to do this. I would encourage you, though, to go and read these on your own. You should always be checking up on the things that are taught, both here or anywhere else. And I want to encourage you to do this and to to figure out what these things actually mean for you and for your family personally. Um, But what we're going to be doing really is just kind of picking through some different principles about giving and generosity that God's Word gives to us. That's really kind of going to be the game plan here. But before we look at these principles, I wanted to do a little bit of deconstruction because I want to talk to you a little bit about tithing. The, The average Christian, if you ask them, what is it about Christian giving? Tell me what Christians are supposed to do with regards to giving. The average Christian will tell you some sort of concept, maybe even a very vague one, with regards to this idea of tithing. And they'll tell you, well, we tithe, it means 10%, and that's kind of what we do. And many of them have very little understanding about what that even actually means, why it was in place, and definitely about how that plays into our lives today. Now, can I do a disclaimer? All the elders in place, put your seatbelts on. You're going to get really nervous when I start talking about some of this stuff, okay? Now, let's continue. Tithing in the New Testament. Now, it means tenth. That's what the word tithe means, and it is an Old Testament principle. Tithing is the pattern that God gave the people of Israel for how they were to live and how they were to give and live together in community there in the Old Testament. It was part of the Mosaic law, part of the Old Testament law. And the idea was is that the first tenth of everything that came in to any family or individual would then be set aside and given to God. Now, that wasn't just money. That would be anything, livestock, uh, crops, any of those things that come in would be set aside the first tenth and given to God. And then that that actually would be given by means of the Levites. It would be given to the Levite people who work around the temple. And then the Levites would then, in turn, turn and tithe out of a tenth of that into the priest. So it was a principle that everyone is tithing. So this was the thing that was put in place. It was a basic pattern there. And there's there's even theories on why the tenth. Was that exactly the number that was needed? Was it for simplicity? I mean, even some that that actually, it seems silly, but if you think about it, the idea that even in the ancient world, much of the counting was done simply off of your fingers. And how many fingers do we have? Ten. And so we start out with first goes to God and then. And there's a lot of theories that are at least interesting to consider on that. Um, We don't know for sure, but we know that they were to give a tenth out of all of that. Their livestock, everything. But but it was actually even more than that. When you then you go into temple sacrifices and and feast sacrifices and different offerings and all this stuff. We covered this in 1 Corinthians previously. The actual number, when it's all said and done, actually ends up closer to 25% than 10%. Um, Everyone else, don't freak out either. Put your seatbelts on. So we'll continue on on this. Um, so, so this is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament pattern for giving for the people of Israel. But what about in the New Testament? What does the Bible tell us with regards to tithing in the New Testament? Because the Old Testament law is good. Everybody say it's good. Everybody say it's all good. Okay, the Old Testament law is all good. But is all of the Old Testament law given to us as something we are required to follow today? And the answer is no, it's not. 
For example, if you're wearing a blended shirt with different fabrics, you'd be in sin. If you're eating crab for Thanksgiving, which was a part of the pilgrim's first meal, if you will, that would be in sin. There's different things, dietary laws, some of those kinds of restrictions that were given to Israel that the New Testament undoes. So, for example, Jesus says at one point in the New Testament, in the book of Mark, that we're not to call these things unclean anymore, and he's talking about food. And it says even in there, and in thus saying, he removed these dietary restrictions from the people. Then you can go into the book of Acts, and there's this vision where the, the, the sheet comes down and all the animals, and God says, let no man call unclean what I have called clean. And so those dietary laws are removed. So that means we, as believers today, are allowed to have bacon. Can I get an Amen. Hey, I was working on my Thanksgiving turkey this weekend, and I thought I would share with you guys a picture of it. Do you have the picture of my turkey? Can you put that up? Yeah? I think that's going to be good. Amen? Anybody want to come over for Thanksgiving? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. My wife just threw up a little in her mouth when she saw that. So, um... So, so there are dietary rules and laws that are now removed. You can take that down. No one's listening anymore. There are dietary laws and rules that are no longer in place. So, so what about tithing? Does tithing apply? And this is an area where people are attacking the church a lot now. They're saying, oh, things like that are Old Testament laws, whether it deals with sexuality or all sorts of things. And so what do we do with this stuff? If tithing has been given to Israel in the Old Testament, what does the Bible say to us now? And this is where the New Testament has to come in. Some people would say, you take the New Testament, you throw everything in the Old Testament out, and we only live by the New Testament. And for that, they are dead wrong. That's not okay. That's not the purpose. But, but there is a sense where we as believers read the Bible back to front. Here's what I mean by that. Tithing, or not, not tithing, excuse me, in the scriptures we have the Gospels, for example, the beginning of the New Testament, the story of Jesus Christ. And in the Gospels, we get the fulfillment of everything that had been written in all of the Old Testament. Jesus says this and teaches this himself to the disciples on the road of Emmaus. says he broke down the scriptures, the law, the prophets, to show them how everything was about him. So in the Gospels, we learn the fulfillment of everything that's been written here. Then in the book of Acts, we see how this gospel is moving forward. We see how the church is being spread and how this mission that even God had for the people of Israel all along is now being carried out by the church. We see how God's plan of redemption, for in the Old Testament, that which was good fell. But now in the New Testament, through the church and by the Spirit of God, he's redeeming and changing and bringing now life to the things that are dead. So you see, we read these things sort of in reverse. And in the epistles, we are given really the the inscripturated truth of the essential abiding elements of biblical theology and Christian living. It's a big sentence. Let me say that again. In the epistles, we get the inscripturated truth, everything that we need to know with regards to biblical theology. In other words, the the scriptures that are the, the New Testament letters help us understand things in the Old Testament. We read through that lens to understand how the Old Testament stories actually point to the grace and mercy of Jesus. And the New Testament does this for us. But it also gives us everything we need towards uh, this idea of how to live a godly life that's pleasing to God. And so what we want to do with things like tithing or crab or what kind of clothes we can wear or whatever is we want to look at the scriptures in reverse. We want to be able to say, okay, this is in the Old Testament and this was prescribed to the people of God in the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say? And does the New Testament remove this mandate for us? Does it set it aside? Or maybe in some cases, does it add to the mandate for us? This is the way that we want to use these things. And when you are looking into the New Testament to understand this concept of the tithe, when you go into the New Testament writing, the truth of the matter is, it's simply not there. It's not there. Most people don't realize that. Now, the concept of tithe is alluded to, but, but it's only done when Jesus comes to the Pharisees and says, you're more concerned about the tithe than you are dealing with justice for those that have been oppressed. But the prescription's not there. Now, that's got to mean something. Because think of the Apostle Paul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews who followed all of God's law and all of God's word. He says, man, I followed it all. I was a Hebrew above everyone else, man. He knew the law and he never mentions it. 
that seems strange. That's got to mean something. Now, before you think, oh, Jeff is about to go off the rails, and now I don't have to give anymore, and the church is going to go bankrupt, our financial oversight elder is freaking out right now, before you kind of go off the rails there, now don't get ahead of me, because you're going to see that the scriptures clearly have much to say with regards to giving, generosity, and how that plays within the church. But at the same time, I think it's important that we be fair and not try to approach things and make the scriptures say things that they don't actually say. I think it's important that we understand that we teach things accurately and that we not put burdens upon the necks of our people that do not exist. Is everybody with me on that? Amen? So this is our goal. Just a couple of people. I'm surprised. I thought that would get cheers. But okay, so this is what we're doing. And, and here's another thing just to throw in as a bonus. Um, an overemphasis on the idea of a tithe can actually be really detrimental. And here's what I mean by that. If, if we take by the idea of tithe, we say it's 10%, that can actually create a mindset within the people of God that says, okay, so this 10%'s God's, and the whole rest of the 90 is all mine. I can live with that. It's a good deal, right? I mean, Jesus takes away your sin. He forgives you for everything you've done. He dies for your sin. He gives you the kingdom of God, and he says, and all you got to do is give me the 10%, and the other 90 is yours. I'm in. Who wouldn't do that? Well, the psalm we read to start this service says what? Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know what fullness means? It means everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So, so when someone gives to the Lord, whether it be of their money or their lives, whatever they give, you are only returning to God that which is already his. And so we can get into a mindset regarding things like the tithe where we're divvying up our lives. We're saying this is what's spiritual, this is what's mine and doesn't concern God, when in reality the gospel is much more holistic than this. So what we want to do is say, okay, what does the scripture say then? It's important to take notes on this or to understand this because many of you have even grown up in the church with this concept of the tithe and, and don't fully have an understanding of what it means. And, and, and you're reasonable people. You're going to see these things in the scriptures for yourself, and it's good for us to understand these things and to make sure that we also are not perpetuating abuses with regards to money that so many people before us under the flag of Christianity have done to God's people throughout history. Amen? We want to be biblical. Amen? So this is what we're going to do. The New Testament does not present, if you will, the idea, the concept of the tithe, but it doesn't set it away intentionally either. So what we're going to do is spend some time here and say, what does the scripture teach us about giving? Now, now in response, or, or in, excuse me, in review to all this, we actually dealt with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 just, you know, several weeks ago, a couple months, whatever it was. Um, and so it's, it's even more weird or, or uncomfortable for me to teach about giving today because I think in our six and a half years of existence, we've only broached this subject maybe, honestly, maybe three times in six and a half years. And so to do it so many times, like right close together, not in my comfort zone, but it's good for us to know these things. And so in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 16, just by way of review, it says that giving gives us some principles for giving that we can start with. Number one, he says giving is to be done with regularity. It says every week. There's a pattern of giving that should be regular and a part of the very rhythms of our very lives. The second thing is, he says, giving is to be done primarily. And what I mean by that is first, that we give to the Lord first. That what we, what we don't do is go, okay, I'm going to pay all my bills, and I'm going to do all this stuff, and that movie came out, I want to see it, I'm going to do all these things, and then at the end of the week, if there's something left, I'm going to set that aside for God. He says, no, that, that's, that is antithetical to the gospel. The, the idea is, is that in response, we'll get into this in a minute, in response to the goodness of God, we are setting forth sort of a, a declaration of dependence in God and saying, you first, before I do anything else, before I spend anywhere else, before I give anywhere else, I want to acknowledge you first as the giver of all good things. And so we're to give first. And it's an act of worship and dependence. The second thing, or the third thing, excuse me, is that giving is to be done proportionately. Giving is to be done proportionally. The scriptures in 1 Corinthians 16 say, as each may prosper. And so what that means is that giving looks different for different people. The idea is not, it's not just a set amount, everyone gives this. It's not a flat tax or anything like that. The idea is, look, as you have been given, 
give in response. So it's proportional. Giving looks different. And I, for one, like that. Because it puts the burden of giving actually on the person, not on, for example, the church. It's, I don't believe it's the church's responsibility to go seek you out and say, you're not doing your, like that's between you and the Lord. The church is just the vessel by which God does or manages even his resources in a lot of ways. Giving is between you and the Lord. I don't need to know what you make. God knows what you make. God knows what comes in. He's the one who gives to you. And that's something that you and the Lord work out and you give to the Lord accordingly. But this is a place, I will say this, where the concept of the tithe can be helpful. Because if you're, where do I start? Well, this was an Old Testament principle that the scriptures do not set aside completely. So it's a good place to start. Just say, you know what? I'm going to do as the people of God have done throughout the centuries. I'm going to start like this. And then I'm going to walk with Jesus and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to constantly be saying, Lord, how can I use the things that you give me to bring you glory? How can I be obedient to you with that that you have given me? And you walk with Jesus through those things. If it was formulaic, we would leave Jesus out of it, wouldn't we? We would say, it would be the next check mark on our lives. Check, did that. Check, did that. And that's not the idea. That's not the idea. So you give proportionally. And the last thing is, is that which is given is to be administered properly. That the church is required to, to use integrity in its use of funds. And if you want to go back to that particular teaching in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, we talked a lot about some of that kind of stuff. You're going to have, to have an end-of-year letter coming out here soon with your tax statements that we usually try to, try to give detail on here, here's what we've tried to do. And we're trying even as a church to grow in more and more detail, to give you more and more financial reports and things as we grow in our own administrative abilities in a lot of ways. But the idea is that the church is required to, to handle or manage the things of God with integrity, just as we as individuals are required to be good stewards of that which God has given us. So that was in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now we're in 2 Corinthians, and in chapters 8 and 9, Paul goes through, he builds on these principles and gives us more principles with regards to giving and generosity for Christians. And number one is this, I'm just going to dive right in. It says, you're to give yourself before you give money. And this is the most important one. If there's only one that I want to sink in into your minds today, it's this one. After this, take your nap. But number one is this, give yourself before you give your money. Look at verse five of chapter eight. It says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. And this is the idea. Before a Christian puts money in the basket, their lives should already be there. Before you put a check in an offering basket that comes by, your life should have already been put, if you will, in the basket. This is the idea. The idea that we put ourselves, we put our money in as an act of devotion to the Lord that we've already dedicated our lives to. And this is what they did. They dedicated themselves first to the Lord as a devotion and worship to God. And then out of that came their gifts to others and their generosity. Now, this is important. When a Christian understands, when a person understands that the reality of what it means to be a Christian is the fact that God has you, that you have now given yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord, and that that's an actual title that means something. That, that that's where giving starts. And when a Christian understands that, that all of Christian living begins with the idea that I've given myself to the Lord, if you understand that right there, everything else is going to fall into place. But until you understand that, everything is going to be out of whack. It just is. And so that's why we're, we're calling this, if you will, these are principles and patterns for Christian giving. Emphasis on Christian giving. Giving. If you're here right now and you're a skeptic, an unbeliever, you're curious, you've never given your life to the Lord, man, I hope, I would, how do I even say this right? Um, I would encourage you not to give. Can I just say that? And, and, and here's why. Number one, there have been a lot of abuses in the church. There's no denying that. The last thing we want to do is to perpetuate that idea. So I don't want to put that on you. Um, number two is that I, I don't want anyone thinking that we're after you for your money. The last thing in the world we should do as a church is start to look at the people that come in the doors as resources for us to go do ministry. They're not resources for ministry. They're objects of ministry. And so you can put such an emphasis on that that when even people that don't even know Jesus come in and feel like they got to pay their, their tithe as part of that, and that's the last thing. We are just glad you're here. You know what we want from you if you're an unbeliever? 
is we want you to meet Jesus. We want you to be forgiven of your sins. We want you to meet the gracious king who loves you with all his heart. We want you to grow in fellowship with him. We want you to see how Jesus can can unravel the messes that have been in our life, past, present, and future. We want to see Jesus heal you. We want to hear testimonies of how the Lord is working in your life. We want to get to know you, love you, and be loved by you. We're not after your money. We want you to meet our king. And that's why we want you to be here. So so this is Christian giving. And the, the second thing is this. The second reason that I would encourage people who aren't believers not to give in that way is because religion is sneaky. Religion is sneaky. And it's really easy to end up in a mindset, even when you didn't mean to, that because we put the check in the basket and because we sang like everybody else sang, that we've sort of done our Christian duty and that because of that, God is now pleased with us. And that's not the basis of Christianity. You can't write a check big enough. No one can write a check big enough to bring us into good standing with God. Our sin has made us an enemy of God, not a financial supporter. And so as enemies of God, there was no way we could pay to fill that gap. And so Jesus Christ came and made himself the payment for our sins. That is the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is only by faith in his son and in his payment for our sins that we can achieve good standing in God. He is our righteousness. Nothing we could do could ever suffice and bring us into good standing. And so the last thing we would want an unbeliever to do is to engage in certain principles of Christian living that make them think they're a Christian. They need to first meet Jesus. And so we want to give ourselves to God before we ever give our money. That's what God wants from us. You guys with that? Amen? And so this is what we want. There was a beautiful story that one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, actually taught that great, uh, where's he from? Scottish minister who's in Cleveland now, like Scots usually are. And um, uh, he tells this story of when he was back in England or Scotland or somewhere and they were doing baptisms and this man who was a really, really successful businessman had just gotten saved and he came forward as a candidate for baptism and they're there doing the baptisms and they had robes. You know, some of you have been in those churches where you, you don't have to get in the dress clothes to get baptized. You can put on, I don't know, swim trunks or whatever you put on under that and then they put the robe on and you go do that. And he was adamant, no, I want to get baptized just like this and the dude's wearing like a seriously expensive suit. And they're like, you don't have to do that, man. It's okay. We can, we can. And, and this is what he said. He goes, no, listen, this is who I am every single day. And I want a constant reminder that Jesus has me every single day. That's good stuff right there. We give ourselves to Jesus before we give Jesus our money. Number one. That'd preach right there, right? We could stop. We're not gonna. Number two, all giving is a response to God's gift. This is the second most important one of the whole thing. All Christian giving is in response to God's gift. Verse one of chapter eight starts right out the gate. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of who? God, not the Macedonians. We want you to know how good in giving the Macedonians are. No, that's not the beginning of Christian giving. He says, I want you to know the grace of God that then worked through the Macedonian people. And so here, know this, write this down. Tweet it, whatever you're going to do. But listen, the starting point, the starting point of giving is not the needs of the world, but the grace of God. Okay, hear this. The starting point of all Christian giving is not the needs of the world, but the grace of God. We, We tend to get moved by the needs of the world when we see them. And we think that that's the thing that is motivating us to give. And commercials are set up for that. Sally Struthers, doesn't matter what TV show she was ever on, young people will not get any of this, so don't worry about it. But, but Sally Struthers will forever be remembered as what? The lady on TV with the African children with the flies all over them that was intentionally and with a good heart and reason, but trying to move people's emotion to cause their emotions to result in giving. That's not Christian giving. It's Christian-like, and it's good, and it's noble, but the starting point for all Christian giving is not the needs of the world, but it is the grace and mercy of God. And, And this is how it plays out. There's a progression here. It's really easy. There's three. The grace of God leads to gratitude, which leads to giving. Three Gs. 
The grace of God leads to gratitude, which leads to giving. As we understand the grace of God that he has given us so much of himself, and he has blessed us with so much, and he has poured so much goodness into our lives and given us just so many things. And when we understand even just a snippet of the value of his son that poured out his precious blood on our behalf, when we start to understand that, we should then be filled with gratitude. Like, Lord, how could you do this for me? I'm not worthy of this, and yet you keep pouring these things out into my life. I am so grateful, and it is that gratitude for God's grace that then leads to giving. That's what Christian giving. When you hear us say things, as we've said before, heritage, a gospel-centered church. That's what gospel-centered means, that it is in response to the goodness and grace of God that we seek to do everything. That's our goal. And so we see the grace of God. We understand his grace in our life. And the more we become thankful for the things that he's done as it builds gratitude in our lives, it leads to giving. And and that's how we even grow. There's another G for you, but you don't have to write it down. It's not in my notes. But that's where we grow. I mean, the idea is this. We're we're growing in the grace of God. We're in gratitude for how good he's been. And then we desire, we want to give. We want to move forward. And also as Christians, the Bible says that we understand not only has he given us as some great benevolent giver of gifts, but that he's also our father. And like any child that has a good father, we want to grow up to be like our father. And you cannot grow to be like God and not become gracious at the same time. Because God is immensely generous. It's one of his qualities. And so as we get the opportunity to give, it only results in even more gratitude. It's an incredible thing that he does for us. It says in in chapter 9, look at it right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. You will be, think about that. He's saying, look, God is going to take care of your crops. He's going to take care of your seed. He will enrich you in every way. But here's the thing, and I got to be careful saying this, so hear me. Look, the grace of God is, I mean, it's everything, isn't it? It's just amazing. It is the core and the motivation for all that we do, right? Don't let me up here. Amen? Okay, but it is not intended to be where it ends. The grace of God is given that we might then become gracious. So so see what it says. It continues on right here in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So you then get the opportunity. We experience his grace. We're so thankful for it. We become generous people. And then as we see God working through our lives to build joy and gratitude and thankfulness in other people, we start to realize that we're becoming a vessel for this very grace he's given us. It just produces even more thanksgiving. Like you bless me and use me? You gotta be kidding. God is so good. And so this is the reality of what it is. We've been blessed by God so that we might be generous. But the starting point of all our giving is the grace of God, not the need to be met. Amen? Number three. We're going to pick it up now. At times, i got to be careful here. At times, we should give beyond our ability. At times, we should give beyond our ability. Chapter 8, verse 3 says this. And they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. You got to be real careful here, okay? Because people have used this in so many horrific ways. This verse has put people in trouble and, and fueled idolatry. Hey, I know you have need and you're low on money, but you know how you get money? You just give more to God because the Bible says if you give money to God, he's going to give back to you. And so there are people who will actually take principles like this and give and give and give, not because they're being responsive to the grace of God, but because they want more money. That's idolatry. That'll get you in trouble fast. Um, You can also do it in such a way that you put guilt on people and end up driving people who are already going through desperate financial difficulty. You can drive them even further into desperate financial difficulty in a way that God doesn't intend. I mean, we see this in Africa all the time. 
Americans that'll come into Africa, preach these kinds of verses, and have the Africa people give to their ministry so that they can then fly back out of Africa, come back to America with all the money. When we, the wealthiest people in the history of the world, are the ones who should be going over there and giving of ourselves to them. Not going over there and preaching that kind of garbage to them and saying, this is what you need to do. You're in poverty because you're not giving. You should give more. And then taking everything away that they so desperately need. Shame on people for doing that. And on people who are in absolute dire straits and then people bring in concepts like tithing and stuff and just put even more burden on people when they're just trying to live. Shame on people for doing those things. But it also doesn't negate the truth of God's word. And here in this story, we see that the Macedonian people were willing to experience the pinch themselves so that the others didn't have to feel the squeeze. I got that backwards. Feel the squeeze, pinch. I forget. I wrote it down better on my notes. But anyway, this is the idea. The Macedonian people were saying, okay, you know what? We will tighten our belt. We will go without a little bit more. We will will make, we'll disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of them. That's the choice that they made to do. And, And we need to be people who give in a way that, it's good to feel it. Can I just say it that way? I mean, David said, did he not? I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And then Jesus, even his own teaching, taught about, he points at the woman who just gave the two pennies, and he said, man, she gave more than anyone else here because she gave out of all she had. Everyone else here just gave out of their wealth. In other words, they gave, but it didn't really mean anything. They're not losing anything by giving. They have so much that it didn't matter. They can just give a little and move on. But, But her, she's making an actual sacrifice and offering to me. And that is a good thing for us. That is a healthy thing for us to do. It it is a declaration of dependence on God, an act of sacrifice in worship, that it models the very gospel of Jesus Christ. But but we have to be careful with those things. Check your heart when you do it. If you're giving more because you're you're saying, if I give more, God's going to give more back, and I need more money, therefore I'll give. Don't do that. And, and be careful not to put a yoke of burden around someone's neck that the scriptures don't. Even when Paul teaches these things, he says, hey, I'm not teaching you these things out of command. I'm not trying to put a burden on your neck. He even says, I'm trying to encourage you. And that's the idea. It should be joyful in response to grace that we give, not burdensome out of some sort of formulaic need to do something for God. That's not the point of Christian giving. But there is something to be said for the fact that we as believers should give in such a way that we feel that. That's healthy for us. Amen? Like two people. Anyway, number four. Well, this is, this is for you then. Number four, giving should be done willingly. 2 Corinthians 8.3 then goes on to say, They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They gave willingly. Like, I can't dictate to you what you should give. I... I would be a fool to try to stand here before you and tell you this is what you should do and this is what you should do and this is how much, this is what your heart should say. I have a hard enough time dealing with my own heart. And that is the beauty of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God's going to work with you in those things. You need to go to him. You need to be responsive to what the Lord is saying to you. But we should do these things willingly. Verse 7 of chapter 9. Verse 7 of chapter 9 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not pressing and pushing and saying, give. And we see, we've seen this so many times throughout history and so many times in our modern church context where there's this burden and this compulsion and you have to give and we're going to send the plates around again. No, we give willingly. So to this, though, some might ask, then why do we pass the baskets? Why do you do that? Why not, and there's some churches that do this, why not have some, some boxes in the back and let everybody give? Well, I should tell you guys, when we actually started this church and I sat down with the elders who were helping us get everything going off the ground, I said, guys, here's what I'm thinking. I saw this in a church once and I thought that was kind of cool. And I, I think, why don't we do this? Why don't we not pass baskets in church when it comes to the offering? Let's just have something in the back and that'll be our way of just trusting the Lord and people won't feel compelled like that. And they shot me down really fast, but for a really good reason. And they were right. They said, no, you don't understand. When we come together, Jeff, we are also facilitating opportunities of worship for people. And many people, just like me, if this was me, I'd probably be able to go, look at all these tithe checks. i got to remember to turn those things in. They've been stuck in here forever. Just sometimes you just don't. 
And so this is what the elders decide. This is what we will do. We'll teach accurately on giving when these sorts of things come up. But the idea is that we come together to worship, and as elders, we should be leading and encouraging giving. And so we've wrestled with that, but that's where we are. But in the end, you should give willingly. If you're giving out of constraint, don't, I mean, really, and I don't mean this rudely, like, just don't. Ask that the Lord to work, would work on your heart. Then give. To, to us or whoever. That's, that's Christian giving. Number five, giving should then be done cheerfully. Going back to chapter 7, verse 9. No, chapter 9, verse 7. It says, for God loves a cheerful giver. The, the, the word cheerful there is actually, the, in the Greek, is the root word by which we get the word hilarity. There should be joy in our giving. And, and I'm, I'm telling you right now, joy is not another car. Joy is not another set of clothes. Joy is none of those things. Oh, they make us feel good when we get them. Let's not, let's not deny it. Doesn't it feel different when you get up in the morning and you get in the new car that you didn't have the day before? Or when you put on the new clothes or the new shoes? I mean, you, you, it's amazing how things can make us feel a certain way, but they don't last. That's not joy, that's happiness, and happiness is fleeting. And you know what? The newness of something can turn you into from happiness to unhappiness. When you get a scuff on those new Air Jordans you just threw $200 down on, or when the car you just bought, and this is going to fix all your problems, breaks down like every other car eventually will. That stuff doesn't last. There's joy in helping someone pay their medical bills. There's joy in taking those ornaments right out there and giving Christmas gifts to kids that put smiles on a kid's face that would not have that otherwise. There's joy in those things. And the more we do that, the more we understand that, the more cheerful and joyful we're going to be as we give. And he says, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a giver that gives with hilarity, if you will, with joy. Number six, just a couple more. Giving is an opportunity to be involved in the lives of others. In chapter eight, verse four. Are you guys loving all this bounce back and forth? I'm not. Chapter eight, verse four. It says that the people of Macedonia were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In this day and age in our church culture, there's a lot about community, about being involved in one another's lives and being real and all these kinds of things. And, and it's led to actually a, a lot of growth in the house church movements and all these sorts of things. But, but giving ends up being one of the things that a lot of people who have problems with church point to. They're all about the money. You know what? Some of them are. Some of them just are. But, but giving is also an opportunity for us to participate actively in the lives of one another in a way that actually makes a difference. When you give here at Heritage, you are paying bills for single moms. When you give here at Heritage, you're helping pay medical bills. You're sending flowers to people that are discouraged. You're sending groceries to someone who just lost, lost a loved one and is paralyzed by grief. You're putting orphans in Uganda through school. Like There are things that you are doing that are real and tangible that make differences in the lives of others. And it should be a joy for us to understand that we have the opportunity to participate in the lives of one another through our giving. But let's not depersonalize giving. As long as the church is being responsible with its income, let's not depersonalize this. Let's understand that God is using the resources that are brought into the church to make differences in people's lives. Amen? So number seven, our giving proportionately affects our lives. Our giving proportionately affects our lives. Look at verse six of chapter nine. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God promises that as we disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others, we will reap benefits for that. And he literally promises that the dividends, if you will, that we receive back are proportionally tied to that which we give. So you can't plant one bulb, if you will, and expect a field of lilies to raise. Are lilies bulb plants? Are they? I'm good on that? Yes. Okay, so lilies. You can't plant one bulb and expect an entire field of lilies to grow out of that. And so for so many people, they're like, I, I want to find fullness in life. I want all these kinds of things. Well, Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you must what? Lose it. And so there's something to be said about the fact that as we give, our lives are increasingly more full. Now, again, that can be used real bad, right? If you give, 
God's going to give you even more back. And you can use that to actually increase idolatry. Not giving because you love Jesus and want the joy that Jesus promises, but because you're like, hey, this looks like a godly formula that's going to give me money. I'm tired of losing money at the track. So, so that's, I'm, I don't go to the track. Do we have tracks in Oregon? I don't even know. <laughs> but anyway, the idea is this, that there is a actual proportional relation that God is promising. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to do it in proportion to how generous you are. That's the truth of Scripture. So we, we believe this true. And then finally, this one, number eight. No one can outgive God. Church people here, you've heard that one a long time, haven't you? No one can outgive God. You know why you've heard it forever? Because it's true and it's in the Bible. No one can outgive God. It says in verse 8 of chapter 9, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You're not going to outgive him. And, and to, to look at God's teaching on giving, to have the Holy Spirit prompt you and say, Jeff, I'm moving you to give in this area, and then to assume somehow that if I do that, I'm going to be lacking, I'm going to lose joy, I'm not going to be happy, it's going to make my life worse, is a failure to understand the heart of God and the promises of Scripture that says, I'm going to make your life better than you realize. It, it may not be money that comes back, but it'll be joy. It'll be the, the blessing of seeing how God is using you to make a difference in the life of others. It'll, it might be the blessing of seeing the kingdom grow. And it might be money. I believe with all my heart, God is looking for good stewards to bless because he wants people to grow in generosity so that he can do continuing works in the world around us. So it could be. But if you chase it for money's sake, oh, that's a snare. And Why would God tempt us with the very thing that the scriptures say would ruin our soul? But no one can outgive God. Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God promises to take care of his people. He promises. Amen? Now in closing, I just want to again reiterate the tone of Paul's appeal. Paul is appealing here, not out of coerciveness. He's not trying to force people into giving. He's laying a pattern out. He's laying the principles out. But he says, I'm not giving you this way by way of command. I don't want you to feel constraint. I don't want, you to, I don't want your gift to be an exaction, he says. Like it's something that had to get yanked out of your hand. That's not what I'm doing. He's not making them feel guilty. He's not saying, oh, those poor people have nothing and you have a lot and someone rolled the slide. And showing the pictures to try to make people feel guilty about what they have. I've seen that happen with good heart and good intent. But the goal is to make people feel guilty so they give out of their guilt. That's not Christian giving. Paul's encouraging them. Here's the one thing I know. St. Augustine used to say this. He used to say, love God and do what you want. It's a famous line of his. Love God and do what you want. And most of us have learned this, and I have definitely learned this in coming up on 15 years of ministry.